Awaken podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. How's it going? Uh, yes, yes, yes. In case you missed it, that's not the music that normally goes with that video. While we could do a tribute to Whitney, and that would be, you know, fitting. Um, actually, the title of my teaching today is How Will I Know? So I thought, I had this brilliant moment. I'm sitting in my office over there, and I'm like, oh, yes, perfect, perfect. That's going to be sweet. So I, I, if for nobody else but me, that was awesome. Thank you. Thank you for coming out. Um, but seriously, uh, both you know, John and Whitney Houston thought it would be a good idea to ask that question. How will I know? So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, before we do that, let me just say this. Uh, last week, the text that we dis- uh, studied brought us to one of, if not the most central and fundamental piece of theology as it relates to what does it mean to follow Jesus. Uh, and so... Uh, as your pastor and as our leadership team, we recognize how important this is uh, to us as a community. Uh, and today I'm not going to be teaching on that topic per se, because really we want to we allow or we want to move this conversation to a setting where there can actually be dialogue. If we're honest about what this uh, setting allows, it, it's not really conducive to dialogue and conversation. And so we want to move this conversation to a place where we can actually have conversation. Um, recognize that last week left some of you with some questions, some really important questions. Uh, and we want to create a space and a place where we can discuss those and really press into them as a community. Uh, and so I want to invite you, if you're one of those people who wants to continue the conversation based on last week, I want to invite you uh, before today is over. We don't have a date set necessarily because I want to know uh, who's interested in this and then what, what d- dates would be best. So if you could, there's just a sheet of paper up here with name and email. If you could just put your name, email address, I'll be in touch with you. And then hopefully if there are some of us that want to continue the conversations, uh, David and myself and probably Ben and a few others will be doing that. Um, before we get to verses 3 to 6, which is what we're studying today of chapter 2, I want to make one piece really clear as it relates to the topic discussed last week. Uh, historically, there are a number of different ways that the church has viewed the atonement. And we want to recognize that each of these has both strengths and weaknesses. Uh, but hear this, atonement is necessary. Uh, Atonement is necessary, and, and there is a fundamental problem that we experience as humans that each of us in our own ways uh, choose to eat the apple, right? We choose to live outside of what God intends for us. Uh, we sin. And so atonement is absolutely necessary, and, and when we do this, when we choose to live outside of that, we experience brokenness, we experience isolation, we experience being separated from, from what God intended for us. And so The incarnation, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus accomplishes something on our behalf for us that when we trust and and through faith, uh, we experience new life because of that thing that Jesus has done for us. And so one of the things that we're trying to do at Awaken is create a place where it's okay to ask hard questions, where it's okay to to maybe see things uh, a, a little bit differently than we have and that's okay. This, of course, uh, opens us up to misunderstanding sometimes, uh, conversations that maybe are a bit messier. Um, 
So how we do this in the weeks coming forward is really important to us as a community. And quite frankly, I've, I view this as a great opportunity for us. I view it as an opportunity to live into the kind of community that we say we want to be. We want to create a safe place for people to journey, uh, to ask hard questions with Jesus at the center. And so this is a chance for us to live into the thing that we say we are as a community. Um, and so I want to invite you to that. I want to invite you to that process. Uh, and, and I look forward to the ways that we'll grow together. I look forward to the ways that God will um, shape us and form us and our love for one another and our love for God will hopefully expand. Um, so, if we may, let's turn to 1 John chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are some in the back here. And I'm going to ask you to stand as we read uh, the scriptures this morning. And we will be reading uh, verses 3 to 6 and then we'll jump in and study this together. So, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 says this, We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Pray with me, if you will. God, we want to ask that this morning as we study your scriptures that you would uh, reveal yourself to us, that you might, um, by your spirit, be present here and opening, be opening up our minds, our eyes, our ears to see and hear uh, the very living God who is revealing himself to us this morning. Uh, we look forward to the ways that you'll prompt us, you'll challenge us, you will ask us to take a step of faith towards you. Uh, and we look forward to uh, to doing that with each other and with you. We pray in your name by the power of the Spirit. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. How will I know if he really loves me? Okay, but seriously. Uh, so, this is the question that John zeroes in on in this section of the book. Uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're new this morning, we're in a series uh, where we're studying the book of First John. This is about week six or seven. And the question I want to ask this morning is, how do we know that we know? How do we know that we really know God? Uh, and I think that's where John kind of leads us, and so let's just go ahead and jump in. I want to start this morning by offering this thought. We know that we know, in quotes. Okay, We know that we know, and I'm going to come back to this in just a second. Verse 3 says, we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Now, here's an interesting fact for those of you... Um, No, I won't say that. For those of you who are interested in these kinds of things, here's an interesting fact that John, uh, in the book of John, the word here that, that, is, that I want to highlight is gnosis. The Greek word is, is gnosis. And this particular word is never used in the book of John, or excuse me, the book of 1 John. So in the entire book of 1 John, the Greek word gnosis, which is on the screen behind me, is never used in the whole epistle. Now, if you look at the Gospel of John, which we're kind of working on the assumption that the, the writer of the Gospel of John is also the writer of 1 John, nowhere in the entire Gospel of John is this word used, gnosis. Now, of course, you might be asking, well, what, what we know that we have come to know him. Different versions of this word, right, different um, uh, uh, versions of the noun to know are used. Yes, absolutely. But the word gnosis never used in the entire book of 1 John or the book of John. Now, this is an ironclad, okay? This is an ironclad, but I want to offer it as an idea. I want to offer it as an interpretive grid and something that I think we should be paying attention to. When a writer uses a particular word, or in this case, leaves a particular word 
totally out of the picture for the entirety of the book and another book that he's used, there are, there are times when a writer will give us a word as a clue, or in this case, will eliminate a word as a clue. And I think as we read 1 John, as we try to interpret 1 John, as we study this book, this is one of those times when our kind of red flags would come up. So if you know this fact that it's never used in the whole book of 1 John, and it's not used in the Gospel of John, this is something in the back of your head where you should be thinking, why does John totally avoid this word? This is an important question. And it's a literary cue that I think is absolutely within the realm of possibility and normalcy as biblical writers go. Other writers do this often. So why does John never use the word gnosis? Remember, the book of 1 John is refuting something, right? There's a group of people who are essentially teaching a different gospel, saying some pretty... uh, They're leaving out some things that are imperative about Jesus, who he is, what he taught, what he did. And so John's refuting this group of people. And one of the heresies, of course, that rises up in the first century is, of course, Gnosticism. Thank you. Well done, class. Way to go. You can participate, okay? You can, you can, and and by the way, a couple of you have said, I just, sometimes I want to say, amen, feel free, okay? This is your, thank you, there we go. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is your, your carte blanche. You, you had preach it. Thank you very much. Yeah. You have, you, have, you have every right, and, and if you want to do that, th- we can be a little bit less Scandinavian here, okay? <laughs> so John is refuting not only this group of people teaching the Southern Gospel, but Gnosticism as a whole. Now, Gnosticism, if you remember, divides the world into sacred and secular, spiritual and material, okay? Spiritual and material, and the result is a belief and an importance given to cognitive understanding, what we know in our heads, a cognitive experience or cognitive proficiency. And often, this was at the, at the behest of or in, in, in lack of anything that had to do with moral or what, how you might live in the material world, right? It makes perfect sense. If the material world is less important and really it doesn't matter, then why would you care uh, if what you believe has any effect on how you live your life in the material world, right? One, one option with Gnosticism is to, is to totally avoid asceticism, right? Avoid anything material. The other option is just sort of engage full, full bore because it doesn't really matter. So this belief of Gnosticism often came with no moral influence or no, no moral impact. This is exactly what John is refuting. The last couple verses have talked about light and darkness. You cannot be in the light if you treat your neighbor this way. And so here, John begins to offer at the beginning of chapter two a theme that will run through the whole book which is this. It has to do with our knowledge of God and our action in the world, the way in which we live our lives. This becomes a, a, a massive theme in the rest of the book of, jo- of 1 John. And, and actually, John kind of does this, and, and here's, here's where I wanted to start. We know that we know. John does this in kind of an ancient trash-talking version, right? I grew up with four brothers, and so all kinds of talk about, your mom is this, your mom is that. But actually, it didn't really work because your mom is my mom, and your, my mom is your mom. So, you know, trash-talking, the kinds of things that you bicker back and forth when you're, when you're playing sports and whatnot. John starts this section, verse 3, by saying, we know that we have come to know. And what he's actually done right there is a very subtle, um, nuanced sentence, and if you're a first century person, and you know you live in the Greco-Roman Empire, and you know what Gnosticism is, you would recognize this because we know that we know is the primary Greek phrase that Gnostics would use. 
So this is something that's totally within the cultural realm of, of, of normalcy. And John says, okay, if this is what the Gnostics say, we know that we know, he co-opts it, he subverts it, and he adds something to it. He says, knowledge isn't just about what you know in your head, but he connects it to something else. And he says, we know that we know if we, com- if we keep his commands. If we keep his commands. And then in verse 6, he says, if we live like Jesus. And, a- and actually, it's downright brilliant, right? Don't you love it when, when someone takes a common phrase in culture that everybody knows what it is, and they just kind of spin it a little bit, right? They use it for their own agenda, their own whatever they're pushing. This is what John does. He says, we know that we know if we keep his commands. Then he goes on, and I- at the end of chapter, or verse 3, he introduces a brand new word to the book of First John. This is the first time this word is used, and it's this word command. So John says, we know that we know if we keep his commands, and he says it later on a couple of other times in verses four and five, right? Uh, he, uh, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. The truth isn't in him, but if anyone obeys his word, so this is the first time John uses the word command. Now, interesting, you should know that when a biblical writer uses a word for the first time, especially if they're connected to any kind of Judaism, this is a big deal. Within Hebrew writing and within, obviously, Old Testament, the idea of first usage is something that you should know about as a person who reads the scriptures and who wants to understand them. For example, in the Torah, the first time a word is used, let's say you're reading the book of Isaiah and you come across this word, um, guard, If Isaiah is using the word guard in a particular way, a good Hebrew scholar would say, where is it used first and how is it used first? And so they would go back to Genesis chapter 4, where Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, and there is an angel guarding the Garden of Eden. And so this connection between what what the word was used first for and how the word is being used later is one that we we should pay attention to. So John uses command for the first time in the book. And if you read it, he really gives no definition for it, right? He just says, if you, should ob- if, you, if you obey his command. But that's it. He doesn't say what the command is. He doesn't say what it looks like. He doesn't say how we obey it. He assumes that you know what he's talking about. So the question for us then becomes, what is the command? And how do we know what this is? Turn to John chapter 13, if you will. Back to the left in your Bibles. I know there's a few more of you with Bibles in here. So if you want to turn there, John chapter 13. Jesus, in a couple of different spots, right in the middle of John's gospel, uses this word command in a very new and revolutionary way. If we're to understand what John, the writer of 1 John, is saying when he says, if we know that we know God, if we obey his command, Let's take it back to how John uses it for the first time connected to Jesus, because, of course, this is the person who John refers to in 1 John, if we, know, if we obey his command, right? It's a reference to Jesus. So how does Jesus use it? First, or John chapter 13, verse 34 says this. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Skip down to verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 15 says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Now look at uh, verse 21 of chapter 14. He continues, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. She is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my father, and I too will love him. 
And last, John 15, verse 12, says this. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Question. What is Jesus, the Jewish teacher, who knows Torah back and forth, Scholars would say that by the age of 13, a young boy would know the Torah backwards. He could recite it from, front to the, to, to the, from the beginning to the end. So Jesus, if in fact he's a Jewish teacher, rabbis didn't come on the scene until later, second, third century, but if Jesus is a Jewish teacher and he knows Torah backwards and forwards, then when Jesus says, this, a new command I give you, what is he doing? What is he referencing? Moses, Sinai, Decalogue, Ten Commandments, the law. So get this, friends. When Jesus says, a new command I give you, what he's doing is redefining what it means to be a part of the people of God. Because to be Jewish, to follow the law, was a particular way you lived in the world. It was a particular way you understood who made the world, how we live in the world, how we love one another. So Jesus comes along and he says, a new command I give you. So if you're a part of the people of God, and you had these commands, this way of living in the world, this Jewish teacher comes along and says, a new command I give you, and it's this. Love one another as I have loved you. What he's doing is redefining what it means to be a part of God's people. And he goes on and further does this with his de death and resurrection. And then to be a part of God's people is to be in Christ. Paul uses the, this language. So when Jesus comes along and he says, a new command I give you, what he's doing is redefining what it means to be a part of God's people. And get this. Our ability to and our confirmation of our love for God is directly connected to our love of other. Let me say that again. Our ability to and the confirmation of our love for God. How do we know that we know? The confirmation of our knowledge of God is directly connected to our love of the other before ourselves. Jesus, he's, he's, he's with the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious people of the day, and one of them comes, tries to trick him, and says, if you could sum up the law, how would you do it? And what does he say? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. This sums up the law. This is the new command I give you. So this is the command that Jesus gives, and this, exactly this, is what John taps into when he says in 1 John, for the first time, we know that we know him if we obey his command. And when he says command, it's important that we understand what he's not referring to is a list of rules and regulations that determines who's in and who's out. Okay, because that's, that's how we often interpret it. These are, the rule, these are the commands of God, these rules and regulations that determine exactly where we all stand and who's in and who's out. This is not what Jesus is doing. And this is not what John's doing because he's tapping into what Jesus is doing. So when John says, we know that we know if we obey his commands... This is what he's tapping into. And John says, if we claim to know God, but do not do what he commands, love others, then we are liars. Verse four, period. This is not a trick question. There's no words here that we can, he says this, but he actually means this. What he means is what he says. If we claim to know God, but do not do what he commands, 
love others, then we are liars. Let me say it this way. Our love is made, our love is confirmed, our love for God is confirmed in our action. Uh, I can tell you guys that I love my wife, right? Uh, I've said this many, many times, and you would hope that that's probably what I might say. You know, I wear a wedding ring, we've been married nearly 13 years, I love my wife, Laura. Now, is my love for my wife complete? Is, is it, is it, how do you know it exists? How do you know it's real? How do you know it's, it's, it's of substance? Because I say I love my wife, because cognitively, this is something I process in my mind and I verbalize with my words, and in our language system, you understand what love is. No. You know I love my wife when I come home and I help cook dinner and I take care of the kids. Or, or I cook dinner and she does, or, or vice versa, or we kick the kids outside and we cook dinner together. <laughs> I love that, by the way, right? Four o'clock, glass of wine, kids are out in the backyard playing while cooking with the honey. It's good. How do, how do you know that I love my wife? When I sacrifice my own desires and my own needs and my own wants for the benefit of the other, right? This is how you know that I love my wife. And this is how I know you love your spouse or you love your children. Because when we serve self first, this is the antithesis of what it means to love. This is what John's getting at. He says, if you, if you claim to know God, if you say, I know God, I have a relationship with God, then your actions will confirm that. Your actions will give, bear witness to that reality. Look at verse five. John goes on and he says, but if anybody obeys his word, by the way, I had a little, I had a little uh, uh, note in here. The country people get it right. A little less talk and a lot more action, right? A little less talk and a lot more action. Verse 5 says, If anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete, is, how, is the word that, that John uses. I want to zero in on that word for just a moment. The word complete, and some of your translations may say complete, perfect, or mature, the word complete is, is uh, John uses the word teleo or teleo, and it comes from this word that you'll see, teleos. And it means perfect, complete in all its parts, full grown, of full age, or mature. So John says when you obey Jesus' commands to love others, then your love for God is made complete, perfect, full grown, mature. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Let's go ahead and look at how Paul uses this. Colossians chapter 1 says this in verse 28. We proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present. So this is Paul. He's talking to the church of Colossae and he says, here's what's going on here. We proclaim him. We admonish you. We teach you with all wisdom so that we may present you teleos, perfect. In Christ, it may say in your translation. To this end, I labor, struggle with all his energy. What Paul is getting at, this complete, teleos, full, mature, lacking in nothing. For Paul, teleos doesn't mean that it's without flaws or perfect in our sense of the word, which is way more platonic in Greek than it is Hebrew. He doesn't mean perfect, like you, can't, you don't need to change anything, there's no room for growth. For Paul, and this, this word actually has both a state, a qualitative state that you are, and a process that you are undergoing and ongoing. That, that's an ongoing thing. So it's the, at once, it's this state that you've arrived at, and yet it's this ongoing process that you're participating in. And for Paul, and for anyone who uses this word, there's a, qu a fundamental 
and qualitative difference between you and another when you are teleos. Let me just illustrate for a moment and bear with me for the, for the sports reference here. And if you're not a golfer, I hope this is going to pay off anyways. Uh, last year, uh, there's, there's four majors in golf, and one of them is the U.S. Open. Last year, a guy named Rory McIlroy, Irish guy. I mean, who doesn't like Rory McIlroy, right? You guys were just in Ireland, huh? huh? All right, there we go. Rory McIlroy, the, the kid's 21 years old, 21 years old. And last year, during the U.S. Open, he absolutely obliterated the competition. I mean, it was a, it was a clinic in every sense of the word. I mean, the commentators were just like, can you believe this? No, I can't. It's, it's absolutely unbelievable. Golf, in, in all of golf's history, as the, as the majors go, no one has ever seen a performance like this kid put on last year. He broke all kinds of records, lowest 36, 54, 72 total total. He broke, uh, uh, Tiger Woods had the lowest number under par at 14 or 12 under par. He, he beat it by four strokes. He was 16 under by the time he was finished. It was absolutely unbelievable. They say that in order to win the U.S. Open, you have to have it all. You have to hit the ball long, and you have to hit the ball straight because the, the fairways are narrow, the rough's really high. You have to be able to scramble. You have to get out of trouble when you get into trouble. You have to have an absolutely just like uh, a steel trap strategic mental state in order to do this because it's just grueling, the whole deal. It's, it's, it's hard to do. You have to be able to putt unbelievably well. You have to have the complete package. Now, when Roy McIlroy won the U.S. Open, the commentator said this about him. This was Roy McIlroy's coming of age. If I could reinterpret, this was Roy McIlroy's teleos moment. Fully mature, complete, lacking nothing, right? This was a moment where he came of age. He became mature, so to speak. John takes this idea of teleos and says that until we obey, until we obey his command, which is to love one another, then our love for God, our right belief about God, is not complete until we obey his command, which is love others. Our love for God is not mature. Our love for God lacks something. We can say we know God, but it lacks something until we Obey his command is essentially what John says. When, but when we love our neighbor, when we love the other as ourself, when we follow the command of Jesus, which is to love others, then and only then is our love for God, right, our, our knowledge of him, right belief, complete teleos mature. Now, as we close, a few thoughts I want th that I think this passage really kind of brings to light for us as we study it. First, I want to introduce or maybe just remind you of two ideas. One would be orthodoxy on the one hand, and the other would be orthopraxy. For those not into Latin, orthodoxy is just essentially right belief, right? Right belief, right knowledge about something. In our case, what does it mean to be a Christian? Who is God? Who was Jesus? Orthopraxy would be right practice, right living, okay? John seems to make it very clear in this text that our belief, orthodoxy, about God is made complete, mature, full only when our action in the world is congruent with Jesus' commands to love the other. Often, our debate in Christian circles revolves around correct doctrine. And whether we believe this about that or that about this. Now, please listen to what I'm about to say. I am not saying that orthodoxy is not important. It is important. It's critical. 
what we believe and how we understand the cross and who God is and what he has done makes all the difference in the world. I would argue it has temporal and eternal influence and impact. For crying out loud, this is why John writes the book. Right? Because people are saying this about Christ and they're saying, no, that's, that's actually, according to what the scriptures have revealed and who Jesus said he was, that's not right. That's not orthodox. And that's why he writes this book. It is paramount. It is essential. It has temporal, it has value and impact in our lives now and forever. I'm not saying orthodoxy is not important. What I am saying and what I think John is saying is that we have to, we have to, have to, have to hold orthodoxy and orthopraxy together. You cannot have one without the other. That's essentially what John is saying in this passage. How do we know that we know God? That our life, the way we live, the way we love, the way we obey Jesus' command, which is to love our neighbor as ourself, when those two things are together, we know that we know God. We obey his commands. If we say we know God and we treat people poorly and we serve ourselves before the other, John says you're a liar. We can't have one without the other. Orthodoxy without orthopraxy leads to religious fundamentalism and it's toxic and it's deadly. Orthopraxy without orthodoxy is toxic and deadly because it leads to just social liberalism where anything goes and it doesn't really matter. Both are deadly and toxic because each one of them misses a fundamental part of the gospel which is to know God is to obey Jesus. That's what John's setting up. That's what he's saying. You can't have one without the other. Lastly, I would frame it this way. And this is my, maybe my, my invitation to us as a community and, our, and my challenge to us as a community. And the question is this, what are we defending and what are we guarding? There's two words that John uses in this text. Verse three, he uses the word, and it's translated keep. And in verse five, he uses a word. It's the same word, but it's translated obey. And the word, we, we, I don't know that we got this up on the screen, but the, the word is tereo, and it means to attend carefully, to take care of, to guard or protect. So the word that John uses for keep my commands and obey my commands means to guard, to protect, vigilantly. So keep, guard, protect, love. Keep, guard, protect, my command. Question, as we close, what do we typically find the church guarding and protecting? When we find the church of Jesus in our culture, protecting and guarding something. What is it? I would submit, and I don't think I have to go too far out on a limb here, that it's often right belief, right doctrine, right belief about a particular theological construct. Now, one could argue that the, the, the defending of that is done out of love. Okay, I'll give you that. But friends, Listen to what John is saying. He says, church, my friends, 
my beloved, the next section, he starts, verse seven, he says, my beloved, my friends, my, my brothers and sisters, if you guard and protect anything, guard and protect love. Guard and protect, as if your life, as if your church depended on it. Guard and protect love and the love of one another. Sacrificial love for the other. This is what John encourages his little church to guard and protect. At least in this text, John seemed, and I think, I think there are others, so I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm isolating one and, and elevating it above all the others. I don't think I'm doing that. In this text, it is, John says, the command of Jesus to love our neighbor as ourself, to give ourselves sacrificially for the other, and to not use the other as a scapegoat to make ourselves feel better. John says, don't do that. That's not cool. Above everything else, let love be the thing that you guard with your life. Again, orthodoxy and orthopraxia. I want to encourage us. I want to challenge us to hold them together because John seems to say you can't have one without the other. Isn't there like a Brady Bunch song or something about that? You can't have one without, or uh, what's that Al Bundy show? Anyways. Yeah, yeah, there it is, love and marriage. Uh, can't have one without the other. I digress. This is how you know God. And isn't this what, Je isn't this what Jesus says, right? How will I know? How will the world know that you love me? Jesus says, to his disciples, if you love one another. And isn't this what Paul says? These three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. The question I want to leave us with this morning as we close is what does it mean for Awaken to be a community that guards and protects love? Love for one another. Because remember, friends, our position in this, right? I'm not saying that that at some point, evil and sin will not be judged. It will. But it's not our job. It's not our role. This is, this is what God does. And we entrust that and give that back to him. What does it mean for awaken to guard and protect love? Like our church depended on it. For that to be the thing that a watching culture looks at and sees. Because I think this is, this is fundamental to what it means to be a human being. That this is the way in which God created us to live. And when we live in this way, it's life. It's life. How will I know that I know God? Our knowledge of God and our belief in Christ as Savior is made complete and fulfilled, full and mature in our action. That's what John's saying. Let me pray. God, I want to ask this morning as um, we uh, put ourselves under um, the weight of your revelation, your scriptures, which is really about who you are. As we put ourselves under that, I pray, God, that you would teach us what it means to be a community that understands who you are and what you've done and lives as people who obey your command, which is to love our neighbor as ourself, to love you with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, 
and to sacrificially lay ourselves down following the, the example of Jesus that we might do this over and over and over again. And God, I pray that you would take up our actions and that you would take up our lives and invest them for your kingdom and for your cause. God, that, that many would know who you are and what you've done. Teach us, Holy Spirit. Uh, I pray we would hear this this morning. God, open our hearts and open our ears. We pray that you would do this for us as, as individuals and as a community of people who follow you. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash community or on Twitter and Instagram. See you next time.